welcome. Welcome to Conversations in Compassion, a podcast by Dignity May, a program of Agape, and made possible by the contributions to Agape. Thank you. This is a different podcast. Instead of interviews, we have conversations. This is my attempt to demonstrate examples of what I call compassion conversation. Through these conversations, I hope to address the discord in our families, in our communities, and in ourselves. And finally, to focus on the greatest need of our time, the need for compassion. Well, I'd love people to listen to uh, Sarah's uh, process of her own recovery, her own discovery. I really wanted to um, point out uh, the construct of uh, what it's like for women in, when they have this incredible disease. Noticing the places where she uh, finds people and relationships to help her metabolize the shame. Sarah, thank you. Uh, this uh, conversation is uh, both both focused on compassion. Uh, and uh, what I'd like to do is to, to chat with you about women and women in recovery. Um, you have done some remarkable work in this community, and I would just love to hear how you see it. Thank you. Um, I think the best way to do this is in the context of what I experienced um, as a very desperate um, meaner who just loved to party and then um, had um, at 18, you know, going to Boston College, being this, you know, good student um, with a lot with a bright future, got pregnant and came home with my tail between my legs and um, and was able to um, put down everything, including cigarettes. Um, and, you know, raised my son and coached and did all these wonderful things. Um, and, you know, slowly kind of found my way back into hard partying ways as he got older. And I had more independence with the help of my family as well. Um, what, I mean, being caregivers for him. But, mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, fast forward to smoking cocaine and, and being, um, you know, partying way beyond what I had done at 18, um, I found myself at um, 35 pregnant again and unable to stop anything. And so I started seeking treatment at that time. Mm. Um, and it was a, you know, it was a pretty desperate thing. Um, and hearing, you know, my options were, were pretty limited. I ended up going to an outpatient um, and there was a, you know, there's group therapy, I suppose. Um, I don't remember all of it because I think their mental illness was, you know, I had a pretty high level of that because of the drug that I chose and how long I had been using. Um, but I also remember um, 
a woman who was my age. Um, we were both kind of scraggly, I guess you could say, and just kind of rough around the edges, I think, and, and angry. And at that time, they were talking about dope. And my family had referred to weed as dope. Mm. So they were talking about dope. And I'm like, how do you shoot dope? Like, how do you, you know, shoot weed? I was just so mixed up and confused because I just mm. never really um, saw heroin. And so I just remember being really confused by that treatment. I um, know that they were drug testing and all that stuff. But um, this woman sort of shared in my aggravation, you know, we were alcoholics and, and like cocaine and we were, we were kind of the outliers in that, that particular group. And, um, so I kind of made this first friend trying to get recovery. And then she was there for maybe, you know, we, we spent a week together, um, you know, going outside at lunch or whatever. And then, then next week she didn't show up past like Tuesday and then, you know, so Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, didn't see her. And then Monday morning, she comes in and is signing papers to leave. And I said, you know, where are you going? And she said, I didn't tell you this, but I've been to 30 treatment centers, all of the, you know, all of them here in Maine. And they're sending me to this place for chronic relapsers. I relapsed last Tuesday night, committed five felonies with my car and trashed my boyfriend's apartment and blah, blah, blah. And I woke up handcuffed to my hospital bed. Mm. And so I was just completely stunned um, I don't know why. I mean, none of that would surprise me today, but, um, so she went away and I just kept trying to hang in there and mm. get something out of these places that weren't, um, weren't really sparking anything in me, you know, a, a sense of hope or a sense of like a, a practical, you know, way to stay sober. I'm um, talking a lot about trigger stuff and mm. the things that set me off and truly everything set me off, right. <laughs> even a compliment, you know, as much as an insult. Um, and so um, I kept doing that. I got pregnant again, um, had that baby four days after I had my second son. Um, I was on a tear and they had the cops looking for me. I mean, it was just a very big dramatic mm. thing. And I was like hiding in the cellar of an apartment building, you know, getting high and watching all of this and my family being there and just completely horrified with myself and honestly baffled at how I <laughs> Why? how it happened um and so fast forward i did have another baby and throughout this time of you know deep struggle i had um i remember i went to crossroads i went to mercy i went to um you know back and forth i think to those places a few times and then i went and lived at finally after my daughter was born um you know, which I really struggled through those pregnancies mm -hmm. to stay sober. Um, mm -hmm. I went to Crossroads with a, child, a camp program, which is Children and Mothers program. Mm -hmm. And there was a little fight on their dad's part, um, not really wanting him to go there with the women. You know, mm -hmm. um, a lot of people are sent there against their own will or from prison. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so um, we kind of won that battle. And I lived there with my kids and um, really struggled with the women who didn't want to be there. They were threatening and um, I just, you know, stayed very focused. I really wanted to be that straight A student that got me into Boston college and, you know, just mm -hmm. trying to do everything right. And I just, you know, kept blinders on to all the negative stuff around me. I remember we were out at a meeting and I found a little stem, a crack stem in my purse and handed it right in. And mm -hmm. it was very fearful. They would ask me to leave and they drug tested me and I was fine. So I was, you know, very willing at that time. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think I did something like I was making popcorn for everybody in this huge pan and they were like, just make a little bit. And I was like, no, I want to make it for everybody. And I burnt it and I, it made the fire alarms go off. And so I remember um, I got kind of like got in trouble for that. And 
So the next day at group, I said something like, you know, I realize now that my decisions and actions can really affect everybody, including, you know, not just my kids, but who's around me and staff and stuff. And right after I really became accountable for that, they asked me to leave, mm. um, that they felt like I had taken their program as far as I could. And I need to make space for another woman. Mm. <clears throat> And I begged them. I said, I don't know what I said, but I didn't mean it. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not okay. Mm. So I was really mixed up about that. I was very fearful. And um, I went into, I was, I remember I was waiting for the meeting to start that night. And I was kind of in there by myself and um, in walks this like very well-kept woman with a couple of sponsees to run the meeting. And she said, hey, Sarah, was, you know, how are you doing? And I said, I'm fine. Who are you? You know, and she was like, um, so-and-so, the one that... <laughs> Um, was this chronic relapser and she was mm. my Abby Thatcher, just fresh faced and glowing, like totally recovered and very much at peace, had a sense of humor, like all the things I was dying inside for. <clears throat> and uh, I just said, you know, you got to help me. They just asked me to leave. And she said, well, come and see me. And, you know, I went right back to the house where their dad was living and he was drinking beer and wasn't going to make any changes for me. That's for sure. And I would take the van and like go see her um, and just an hour or a couple of hours a week, like, you know, getting away from the kids and driving into Portland from uh, Cumberland was just not safe for me to do. Right. And so it didn't take long till I was off and running again. And this time I just kind of had a death wish. I had just been to too many, mm -hmm. I don't know, as you can tell, it's bringing up a lot of stuff with me. Um, mm -hmm. You had a lot of shame at that point <laughs> yeah. that, that you wanted to be a good mother and, you really wanted to be there for the children and something you didn't even know what it was, but something kept wanting you to use and keep going. And, you know, like you said, a death wish that just really wanted to take you out. Yeah. I just didn't want my kids to feel that rejection. And so maybe they'd just be better off without me. And, um, right. You can, <clears throat> and you could feel that really deeply in yourself. Like the shame was just grabbing a hold of you. Yeah. And here you were trying to be that really perfect child again, and it didn't work. And so there were people rejecting you or pushing you out. And, and, yeah. you, and you wanted what she had. Something changed for her. Something shifted for her from a chronic relapse. So you kept that in your mind. And then there was another part that was just like, I want to die. Yeah, like I failed her too. Yeah. But I, I also had this clear, you know, this just things that stick out. And this was a very lucid thought um, when she was leaving. I remember her saying that. I didn't tell you. I went to 30 treatment centers. Um, I remember thinking to myself, my very first thought was, oh, I'm glad I'm not like her. Mm. And then right after that was an intrusive thought that said, you, I'm just like her. And I probably should skip out the 30 treatment centers that I'll probably get sent to and go to the place that she's going. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so I went on this big bender. I didn't see my daughter's first birthday. Um, mm. So I just kind of, you know, kept like pushing myself into the shame spiral. And um, I remember finally, I just, I don't know, I called a friend. I started calling that place. Um, and it, the difference was it was a more spiritual program when they, you know, did the 12 steps and stuff. Um, so anyway, I started calling there and I couldn't stay sober. Finally, I just went to a friend, stayed there for two nights and got on a bus and was actually able to um, get in there. And, you know, what was given to me was a introduction and, you know, a sort of immersion into some, some recovery work. 
And this man who is still, you know, a big mentor to me today, um, broke it down for me in a way that was like, you know, really light and, you know, very direct with examples of his own experience. And then also, um, without really knowing my whole story, um, gave me examples. I, he must've known my story. What am I talking about? I know I didn't tell anybody at that point, but <laughs> he would bring up stories of, you know, people with every reason not to use, you know, they used and just started settling my nervous system and right. bringing in some trust there. And he kept framing it for you so that you started to realize that you weren't just alone, that you were so broken, but that there were other people just like your friend mm. who uh, figured out a way to deal with this chronic death wish. Mm. Yeah. And he was very gentle and he didn't, I don't want to say he took special interest, but definitely would like, I, I remember I just like run down. I just had so much energy. It was so inappropriate. Like I just had, it was so like, I don't know. Everything came out sideways. I talked too fast and too loud and <laughs> laughed like a crazy person. And I would just try so hard, you know, but it just always came out wonky and people kind of kept their distance and edged away from me where he sort of, you know, would stop and look at me and observe and then give me one little like tidbit. And one time I was like tearing down the stairs that are right by the office, the front office. And I remember he was waiting at the bottom because he could hear me from my bedroom, which is, you know, it was like an old hotel. So it was like way down the top deck. So I just stormed down the top deck and down these stairs. And he was waiting and he opened the door on me and said, you know, God's not going to interrupt you. You need to, you know, get quiet and listen. And I just jumped out of my skin and then, you know, really just try to take everything he said, like into my heart, into my practice. Yeah, there was this uh, spiritual person that arrived in your life to just give you tidbits. Mm -hmm. Gentle kind, very specific, felt like he taken a particular interest in you. Um, he was focused and uh, it wasn't overwhelming. It wasn't it's just quiet your soul. You can hear it. Mm. I think he sensed that everybody else was pretty avoidant of me. Mm. And I was, I was a lot, you know, like women. So you, you know, you asked specifically about women and get this sense I had this sense of like you know being too much mm -hmm. and wanting to suppress 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 the um, anxiety mm -hmm. um, there were no drugs available to help with any sort of stimulant there was no detox it would have really helped me mm -hmm. I remember one time I to get into mercy detox I took a benzo and drank a beer mm -hmm. so because it, it was in my system they would let me stay there and they let me stay for like two nights or something but mm -hmm. I was just like very strung out you were all you, you you're always you've known this for some time you've just been this beautifully large emotionally available person and people back off from you or there's a lot of sort of energy around, uh, you know, you're too edgy or you're too much or mm. you could feel it uh, from people. And what he did was uh, just see you, not see that he saw just you. Mm. And uh, you now, you know, sort of help other women in a very, very, dominated male context. Oh, yes. He 
get that right. <laughs> I think we're doing a better job with the work of like Abu Mate and, you know, the dislocation theory, you know, helps people sort of understand certain things. But with women, um, there's very much, you know, what I see on the front lines is that suppression. Uh, you know, oh, my God, if you're anxious, we need an anti-anxiety. But if you're depressed, we need an antidepressant. And then we need a booster for that. And then probably an antipsychotic will help you, you know, really get out of the stress response. And really, we see women, I, I just ask them to um, look within and be really gentle with themselves and ask if they feel a little dead inside. You know, if they're not feeling motivated and inspri inspired mm. and hopeful. Yeah, there's a social construct that you're talking about, something that happens in the community that's very oppressive in terms of the whole field. Uh, you know, it's just that women, if they're too much or exp they've got too much, they've got to somehow control themselves. So let's just give them medication for this or medication for that or some way to contain them. Uh, and uh, it's... It, <clears throat> It's so secretive, too, that uh, it was really remarkable. I thought about this con this conversation with you because uh, I sat with somebody who was just talking about that nobody ever saw her drunk, but she was drunk all the time by herself. And we talked about that as a, as a woman, what that's about. And she said, I don't have the right to be clear about my drinking. Mm -hmm. because I would be judged not just as an alcoholic or somebody suffering with a disease, but there would be a lot of other judgments attached to me. So I'm going to do it quietly. Mm -hmm. Always, um, you know, the women, the mothers need to get home to the kids. They, they don't have the time to take for treatment and take mm -hmm. for themselves, mm -hmm. especially beyond the, you know, the minimum <laughs> or just a detox, you know, send them back home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of that, a lot of attachment, a lot of um, expectations. Mm -hmm. You know, not supposed to act like that. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. Not supposed to act like that. Right. And then there's a lot of power over when you have, when you when you are sort of in that uh, place of a death wish, then there's sort of like lots of relational issues that start to come that are really difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would very much, I, I can relate to being in this like little room in my head. And it really, there was, there were no higher thoughts. There were no thoughts outside of the using cycle. And once I, you know, if I couldn't get, if I had a sober moment and my thoughts drifted back to my kids, the stab in my mm. heart would immediately just put me right back in that room and can't have anything outside of that because it was just too painful and too hopeless that I was, you know, I'd already burned all the treatment in, in Maine, mm -hmm. not in, not in everywhere in Maine at that time, but um, mm. yeah. Well, and then there's a stigma just around you being a mother and using that way, feeling that stab and then going to try to medicate that stab because there's so much shame attached to it. And then you're, looked at as a bad mother when in fact you're doing it because you'd like to be a good mother and you can't figure out how to get out of this pain, this, this shame spiral. Yeah. Yeah. And people don't see that you want to be a good mother. They see that you're a bad mother. Mm. Well, and then because you're not so, you know, I, because I wasn't, um, 
I was still emotionally dysregulated around my children, like mm -hmm. trying so hard, you mm -hmm. know, like trying to play and be funny or, or I don't know. It was um, exhausting. And mm -hmm. I remember my parents had a four hour window. They drove with my dog and my kids who were one and two, um, two hours to see me. And after about an hour and a half, my mom really sensed that I was like overwhelmed and had had enough. And that was another very shameful thing. But to my immense gratitude she sort of said the kids needed a nap and they needed to go um mm -hmm. but it was that it's brain damage you know it's temporary i mean it's definitely treatable but we're really not capable of going i mean if using for years and then being able to go to a short treatment and then just go get a job <laughs> like it's without what? practicing in right. the real world uh right. i don't have any stock in that unless you're a pretty high you're pretty high on the scale of um you know in the functioning spectrum for addiction well and even if it's not a job like you gotta go home and be a decent parent mm -hmm. that's a, a job. job that's a job <laughs> you know <laughs> that's what i mean yeah and and how do you do that when you're I mean, you you can take the alcohol out, you can take the substance use out, you can take all of that out, but then you ended up with the shame spiral mm -hmm. that you could feel. I mean, you could feel it in your heart. You just pointed to it as you were talking about it. It's just like sitting there, mm -hmm. this painful, sharp pain. And all you want to do is use again. Yeah. It's definitely present in treatment as well. Like, I think that women really struggle um, in my facility just about, um, you know, feeling this long, like this, you know, woman had a cat that was being watched by somebody else and just the cat was, you know, rescued and anything to pull ourselves out of mm. having to go within and really unearth, um, you know, make a big change, like radical changes in thinking and doing. Um, and that's only developed by thinking and doing that over and over. Mm. And that's what I find really helpful in the 12 steps. Like you kind of walk a thought over and over about a certain situation that you would put in a certain perspective um, that gave you, usually it was something that I was resentful about. Mm. And you know, just stacking those up and, and using and drinking over all those resentments. Um, mm. And then undoing those and getting to the truth of them and not living in the delusion anymore. That practice was really helpful for me, but I mm. couldn't have done it just trying to go back to the same situation because I would still be accumulating resentments and not getting on top of the pile and, you know, right. metabolizing right. them. So, yeah. Yeah. You were adding. Mm -hmm. And then when you sort of get out of the adding, you know, and you get some space, uh, the 12 steps helped you do that, but you got some space to start to process. Yeah. And you could see that people were kind like this man in the treatment program and like this woman who found her own after chronic relapsing, find her own. These, these friends started to appear in your life. Yes. And they could let you metabolize some of the shame, just move it on, get, get rid of it. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be so, and, and maybe I've got this wrong, so you can let me know, but there seems to be, an oppression around women and maybe it's the child rearing, maybe, but that they're so bad. They're so troubled if they have an addiction. Mm. 
it starts with even making the decision to use it. Like we're supposed to be smarter and, you know, doing all of the, all of, with all of our responsibilities, you know, how could we ever choose to do a hard drug or anything like that? Meanwhile, the expectations are, I think, so high because I think a lot of women will work full time and then also be expected to hold these, these major roles in the household. Um, all of the men that were there didn't have any sort of pressure like that to get mm. home or mm. stay as long as you like. Mm. Whereas all the women really shared in this, like, you know, calls home or, or um, pressure, you know, to, to wrap it up, mm-hmm. you know, hurry up. Get home. Back. Yep. Take care of their children mm-hmm. or take care of the men. Yeah. Right. Or take care of whoever and rescue cat or whatever. Mm-hmm. This take care of oppression for a women on a regular basis means they can't take care of themselves. Got to get home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it it just keeps perpetuating that cycle. I think. Now that more is understood about addiction, it can put it in a context that's a little more understandable because of the uh, just the strength of drugs and and all of it now, like how quickly, you know, someone can kind of spin out of control and the attention that's been given to doctors, you know, putting women on, you know, gabapentin and just all of these little helpers, you know, to Mm -hmm. keep them, um, you know, ambient to sleep. That's a Mm -hmm. benzo. Now the studies on benzos are, Mm -hmm. you know. You get dementia if you've been on them for longer than 30 days. I mean, mm-hmm. lots of warning signs. Pharmaceuticals were always a major problem with most women. Um, and we're the beginning, you know, drinking and, and pharmaceuticals prior to street drugs. There's some, as you were talking about that, there's also some research that if a woman goes into a, and sees a doctor and and the questions about their substance use would not be as frequent as the men would be asked about it. And mm. It's almost like uh, it's a more silent, uh, more shame-based uh, situation where, you know, people are not even talked to about it. I will tell you that I was getting tested because I was at a clinic. I had main care when I was pregnant. And I was being drug tested and no one was asking me any questions. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Didn't know if they knew or not. I didn't use continuously. I mean, obviously, I didn't, you know, not obviously, but I, I didn't. I had to I somehow hold things together. Um, but no one ever approached me um, until afterward. And then I asked them about that. And they told me that they had had some positive tests. But while I had a fetus growing inside me, they didn't bother to try to reach out mm-hmm. and maybe suggest, you know, I think I would have jumped at the chance. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get well so badly. Mm-hmm. I couldn't stand myself. Mm-hmm. I, I, I used like seven years past my first thought of like, eh, I should probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's awful. Such a strong, powerful force, man. That's awful. There's, there's something in there and I, and just thinking about it like you don't matter at that point. They know that there's something in the, in the testing. They know that. Mm-hmm. 
but they don't want to talk to you about it. It's almost like you don't matter. Your whole gender doesn't matter. Just as long as we get, you you give birth here. Mm. And uh, you said it's just been, was years of this incredible process of going from one treatment from mercy to crossroads to another back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Seven years of wanting to quit and couldn't seem to find a pathway that would work for you to metabolize your shame. Yeah. It was two years, you know, it was when I got pregnant where I really decided to try and Mm -hmm. I couldn't. And that's Mm -hmm. when I started getting treatments. So it was two years after that when I finally did some work and recognizing the power of, um, you know, what it had over me and how much like equally matching that huge power with like a surrender into being willing to do, you know, this body of work to the best of my ability and just see what happened. And, you know, I was blown away, absolutely blown away. So sad for a minute about, um, you know, not, not being introduced to it sooner Mm. while having a captive audience. You know, Mm. I've heard many treatment providers say, you know, the 12 steps don't belong in treatment. I'm thinking, (laughs) It's the only treatment that ever worked for me. Mm-hmm. That's a hard thing. It takes more time. It takes more attention and guidance, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very powerful because no one could write that for me. And um, knowing internally that I did it to the best of my ability, I didn't do it perfectly. I went back, though, and did the things that I forgot or, you know, took the suggestions. Um, but it wasn't long before I felt like I was going to be okay. Like I finally found something I could sink my teeth into and then I could just like, you know, continue to walk a path with other people's support and, um, you know, stay in a community. So it was, mm. it was amazing. You have uh, invested most of your life now other than caring for your children and your relationship and your family. And, but you've invested your life now in terms of doing just that building community for women. Mm-hmm. You know, just I loved how you said it. Just like I kept trying to take the next right step and develop that kind of place where people could metabolize their shame. Mm. And, uh, you know, all of that is coming from that sort of, this is what worked for me. What worked is one small step closer to community. Yeah. I'm pretty good at that. I think I just, you know get in tune to my inner fire and the stuff that kind of lit me up. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I use that language, like, I just want to light a fire in your heart. Like you get to pick, we're mm-hmm. going to do art. We're going to do, you know, walking with dogs and mm-hmm. find mm-hmm. the thing that lights you up. And um, that and no one's ever spoken that way to them before in a setting of like, mm-hmm. well, I don't know. It's, most of them say that, um, but it's just the most basic community stuff, you know, walking outside. Mm. Um, I did want to say like, as far as, you know, anti-anxiety, you know, the earth can ground lightning. Mm-hmm. It can ground our anxiety. If you just, you have to lay on it though, you know, and mm-hmm. look up. And, so we do mm-hmm. classes on that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. All of that stuff, the, the fun, simple things in life that can be um, really the most doable, the most practical and the most powerful. Mm-hmm. You can, as we begin to wrap this up, you can begin your, and thank you for your journey. There's a few things that stuck out for me as we just chatted about your journey about 
people arriving in your life right from the beginning. You know, this woman you found in the treatment program that, and she left and then later arrived back in your life. And mm -hmm. this man that saw you and had an interest in you and was gentle with you. And then your own sort of building community as you moved along. And then also that other part of you that, you know, you called a death wish. Mm. From the shame of your life. And that what you're doing now is to try to bring some kind of spirituality where people lay on the ground and feel their fire. And it's within their soul. For women you know, who have a particular oppression mm -hmm. of, uh, as you described, caretaking, uh, get home, take care of others. And when you take care of others, you forget yourself often. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. And I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. I'd like to give a heartfelt thanks to all the contributors to Agape Inc. for their support in making this podcast possible. If you care to join us, please go to DignityMain.com to get involved. Thank you. Thank you again for being here and take good care.